a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. It's been said that a lie will go around the world while the truth is putting its boots on. In this episode, as the SARS-CoV-19 global pandemic is unfolding, we explore the subject of vaccination, specifically whether the promise of an effective COVID-19 vaccine represents false hope. Our first guest, Professor Terry Nolan AO, is a paediatrician and clinical epidemiologist, also head of vaccine and immunisation research at the Peter Doherty Institute in Melbourne, Australia. We were then joined by Professor Mark Cohen, a pioneer of wellness and integrative medicine with degrees in Western medicine, physiology, psychological medicine, and PhDs in Chinese medicine and biomedical engineering. Our first guest, the esteemed Professor Terry Nolan, is incredibly busy. I felt incredibly lucky to have a chance to speak with him at this time. As a former paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and at the Montreal Children's Hospital, Terry's insight into vaccines is grounded in first-hand clinical experience. That said, he's also earned a PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics at McGill University in Montreal. Since being promoted to professor in 1999, Terry Nolan has had numerous public health and academic leadership positions, including as Associate Director at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and more recently as the Head of Vaccine and Immunisation Research Group, Virgo. His research has been principally in immunisation and clinical trials of new vaccines. He has over 240 publications in refereed journals and served on a myriad of international appointments, including a six-year appointment with the World Health Organization's Global Advisory Group on Immunisation, SAGE. Let's get to it. I wanted to lead out by asking you to share with us a bit about your own story and your journey to becoming, I guess, what many people have referred to as Mr. Vaccine, an expert in vaccine developments and clinical research. Thanks very much, May, for the um, possibly misleading introduction at which I'm smiling, so thank you anyway. Um, I'm, um, I'm actually a paediatrician or trained as a paediatrician in Melbourne, although I went to medical school in Perth. And following my training in paediatrics at Melbourne, I worked in uh, and studied in Montreal in Canada, where I did a PhD at McGill University and trained there um, in my science discipline, which is in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics, with a particular emphasis on clinical trials. And from there, I returned to Melbourne and um, established at the Children's Hospital a clinical epidemiology and biostatistics unit and began um, a program of research in vaccines and childhood immunisation. Um, from about 2001, um, although I was still within the University uh, of Melbourne, I moved to establish a new School of Public Health at Melbourne University, which was called the Melbourne School of Population Health, later to become the School of Population Global Health. And I remained the head of that school until last year when um, I resumed my role as a full-time researcher, but now within the Doherty Institute uh, at the University of Melbourne, and also uh, continuing a long-standing um, appointment and role within the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, of which I was also an associate director in the late 1990s. Um, so my work in uh, research in vaccines has been long-standing, and I've had numerous policy advisory roles with the Australian government. I chaired the Australian government's principal advisory committee called ATAGI, uh, which uh, is responsible also for producing the immunisation handbook that's used by all clinicians in Australia. Uh, and I also spent six years um, on the World Health Organization's principal advisory committee called SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group of Experts for Immunisation Globally, um, and finished that time-limited role um, a couple of years ago. So that's me. For the benefit of everyone listening in today, tell us about 
what you are currently involved with um, in regards to COVID-19 and the very hot topic of vaccine development? So my own research at the moment, um, we are actively um, involved in the Doherty Institute with um, colleagues who are immunologists, uh, virologists and other basic scientists in the development of, um, if you like, um, a second row of candidates for COVID vaccines. Um, this is necessary because, as you've heard repeatedly from many people, there's no assurances that any of the existing candidates will work, although as we'll come to later in our discussion, the data is looking day by day increasingly positive, but until we've got the results of the phase three trials, we're not going to know for sure. Um, and the candidates that my Doherty colleagues are working on um, have additional novelty and uh, promise that um, if, uh, again, if they're successful, we'll also add substantially to uh, the range of vaccines available worldwide. In addition to that, um, I've uh, led the establishment of a national alliance um, of vaccine clinical research centres in Australia to attempt to attract um, some of the major um, consortia which have developed COVID-19 vaccines to do some at least of their clinical trials in Australia because we have such high quality clinical trial infrastructure uh, and also um, because we have relatively little disease including even in Victoria as we're struggling with the current second wave compared to the amount of disease elsewhere in the world we have tiny tiny amounts of uh, circulating disease and the phase three studies actually must be done to do them quickly enough must be done in countries which, which have very high rates of circulating disease. The earlier phase two studies, though, by contrast, need to be done in places where there is not a lot of circulating disease because you're looking to see how well the antibody responses to the vaccines uh, occur and you don't want that contaminated by people being exposed to virus in their natural uh, environment. Um, and so Australia is really ideal for both phase one and phase two studies. I'm going to take take us back a little bit to establish some of the, the grounding to, for this conversation and, and ask you a clangor which has sort of come from one of our listeners, which is it's been said that around 99% of people who are screened as COVID positive recover using their own immune system. So in your very expert perspective, why is a vaccine so important and so necessary? Well, first of all, that assertion is not really true. <laughs> And it, do, it does vary depending on um, the setting and also on the demography. The overall mortality rate of this disease is probably only a couple of percent, um, but uh, two percent of, of a whole population is a very big number. And, and especially when it's a very vulnerable proportion of that population, in this case, particularly the elderly or those who have associated chronic diseases, um, and exceptionally younger individuals as well can die. So um, that's the answer to the question. Um, doesn't matter what that, num that percentage is, the actual number of people who may die from this condition is still unacceptable to most societies around the world. It's certainly unacceptable in Australia and that's why we're prosecuting such an aggressive disease suppression strategy at the moment to try and minimise those people who die prematurely from this disease, irrespective of their age. The second consequence of a pandemic, in other words, rapidly accumulating disease is the negative effect on the whole health system. So the whole health system can actually collapse uh, in the event of a massive outbreak, which means that people will die from other conditions, not COVID related, but conditions which require medical treatment. If all the ICU beds are used up uh, for people with other conditions and you have severe heart attack or a road injury or something like that, um, then your own risk of dying will increase if you don't have access to medical care. So that's, that's the, the most extreme end. That's the answer to that question. But it's also the fact that other than dying, uh, this disease causes severe morbidity. In other words, people end up in intensive care on ventilators, on what's called ECMO, um, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is artificial lung machine, basically, sometimes for two or three weeks of extremely expensive and extremely uh, debilitating uh, intensive care, uh, which in and of itself is something to, to be frightened about. 
And then finally, even if you don't have that level of severity, we're now learning that those who've had uh, less severe disease will also potentially have quite long-lasting symptoms, many months and, and possibly even longer, as we still discover. We've only had this disease for six months or so around the world. Uh, we're still finding out what the long-term consequences will be, and in some cases it's looking like uh, there is a lingering morbidity, um, illness, lack of well-being, which, um, which hangs on with this condition. So it is not a trivial disease by any means. In your experience of the last six months, has that been a difficult message to get out in full? How have you felt about the media coverage of COVID-19 and, you know, maybe in particular vaccines? Yeah, it's a good question, May. The, I think the media coverage has varied, possibly as it does anyway, from being absolutely superb, well-informed. Um, um, you know, I, I often joke with friends now about, about how the level of literacy about epidemiology actually in the general population, but especially in the media, has arisen. That, you know, <laughs> these terms that people are using now, you know, case fatality rates and um, reproduction um, effective uh, numbers and other things uh, are now almost in the common uh, parlance. Uh, and, and the level of sophistication, the subtlety of understanding the complexity of this disease and also its societal effects has been reported, I think, by most of the media extremely well. The other extreme is where the media has really taken a particular angle, um, a particular axe to grind, um, perhaps favouring a particular sector. So the arguments about, for example, the trade-off between economic damage and loss of human life in some cases takes a very um, jaundiced view, in fact, um, that, um, that economic disbenefit, if you like, or economic costs when you're trading off uh, loss of life in a 90-year-old, some are arguing, I think, um, and are being supported by some of the media um, in an unconscionable way. So if we were guys to speak to those people, I kind of really want to land this point and drive it home. Mm-hmm. In your view, what would happen if we did nothing, if we did kind of what Sweden did or a permutation of that? Yeah. So Sweden, Sweden um, didn't quite do nothing, but they had a much more relaxed approach and were prepared to tolerate a level of, a higher level of mortality um, which uh, did result in much higher death rates amongst their population. And the argument was that uh, by doing that, you do much less damage to, um, uh, to death rates um, in, in the elderly. Um, sorry, you do much less damage to the economy um, uh, because your suppression levels, the extent to which business was being interfered with, um, did not occur. Interestingly... Uh, the exact reverse has occurred and, and recently I saw some very interesting data looking at a number of countries at the relationship between overall mortality, principally in the elderly, and the extent to which there has been economic downturn. And the countries which have kept their elderly mortality to the lowest, often always as the result of public health intervention, are the ones which have, including Australia, are the ones which have had the least uh, economic negative impact. So Sweden, despite the fact that they had much, much higher mortality than, uh, for example, other neighbouring Scandinavian countries, actually had quite a substantially, uh, worse than Australia, uh, a worse impact on their economic um, performance over the period of the first half of this year. So um, I think that mantra um, doesn't hold true um, and it's a far too simplistic a way of understanding what the impact on society is of this virus. Do you think that message is um, as understood? And do you think that there's a way to kind of, or do you think we need to do more to get that message out there that, you know, protecting our elderly is actually correlated with a better economic outcome? Because the debate's getting hot out there, especially in Victoria. It is. Um and should we be doing more? Yes. Um, particularly, the, for example, the data that I just cited, for, for example, was actually shown on ABC television news. It was Alan Kohler who had put together the numbers, um, which I was absolutely delighted to see. Um, and certainly amongst my own non-medical friends, for example, I shared that information recently and they were all astonished. So I think 
I think there is a need for these broader facts to be made available and for people to both hear, hear them and also be helped to understand them. Whose responsibility is, is that? Um, probably everyone's, including the media. Um, again, this is evidence. This is not, this is not um, uh, you know, social philosophy or anything like that. It's just the facts. And, um, and it's clear that if you let this disease rip, it will have a massive impact on both mortality and also on your economy. If you hit Google and type in COVID vaccine, a lot of players come up. My question to you is, how does a country go about determining which vaccine candidate to back? That's a great question. And it's, it's actually not a new question because uh, many countries around the world have been doing this in planning for pandemics in, in previous years, influenza pandemics have actually had pandemic plans in place where um, processes to decide this sort of allocation hierarchy um, on the basis of who should get vaccine first if it's not available for everyone immediately, which is nearly always the case. Um, and that was done. I was involved with the planning for uh, H5 bird flu when it looked like that might turn into a pandemic and then in the planning subsequently around what happened with H1 vaccine and then the, the, that vaccine did become available. We were involved in doing clinical trials with that, that vaccine with CSL and were the first in the world to produce a bird flu vaccine um, both for adults and children. Um, and generally speaking, the principles um, of that allocation are exactly what you'd hope to see. Those who are in most need, those who are most vulnerable, those who are, in, are most needed to um, provide a service to the community to, to protect others. So this, for example, results usually in an allocation hierarchy which at the top will include uh, healthcare workers, so people who are looking after those who are most sick and without them uh, you've just got a, a palace situation. Um, those who... Um, who are most vulnerable in terms of their underlying conditions, so those who are older or those who have chronic uh, medical conditions, um, those uh, who have other first responder uh, responsibilities, um, you know, not just in the health area. By health, I'm including aged care, by the way. Um, but more generally in society, the people who are responsible for maintaining services and, um, and other things which are vital, you know, power and distribution and a range of other things. So, so the answer to the question is that there's no, you can't look it up on Google and here is the order, um, but most countries establish some mechanism of consultation, broadly seeking input from across society to help determine for their own country what that allocation hierarchy might look like. And that is done, as I say, in Australia. It's been done in the US and for COVID-19, it's actually just been published. There's a document um, which actually explains that process and explains where they got to in terms of that allocation hierarchy. So an add-on question to who gets the vaccine is how do we pick which vaccine, which potential vaccine candidate becomes the one that gets manufactured and rolled out? Because, as you know, there are many. Well, there are many candidates, but there are zero at the moment that we know that work. <laughs> So the, answers, the answer to the question is simple. When there's zero, we don't get to pick anything because there isn't anything to choose. That's where we are at the moment. But shortly um, and progressively, it's not going to happen all at once, but progressively we're going to have results from, uh, from phase three studies of vaccine efficacy and safety, uh, which are very large scale, which are going to give us that information. The second thing will be once that information is available, and let's say we do have one or more candidates, um, the next question will be um, how much volume is there available in terms of doses um, that would mean even if you could pick it that it would be available to you. That's why it's so important recently the Australian government has announced that it's done a deal with um, AstraZeneca, uh, which is the commercial partner for the Oxford University Jenner Institute uh, candidate, one of the three or four lead candidates in the world. Um, still phase three is not completed, they're well and truly underway, but it's going to be some months before data from those will be available. Um, but they have, they have now, and I heard today the Prime Minister say they've now actually signed the deal for it, um, which includes a deal with the Australian company CSL um, to actually manufacture the majority of doses here in Australia. 
a small number of doses the government, we were told today, will be provided by AstraZeneca itself for manufacture offshore, something like, I think, 3.8 million doses. But I think uh, another total of something like 50 million doses um, is to be provided by CSL in a manufacturing agreement with the owner of the vaccine. Interesting, the interesting thing will arise when, let's say, that vaccine does prove to be successful, it is purchased, CSL are able to successfully go ahead and manufacture it. And let's say it's shown to be effective, but only at a modest level. But nonetheless, at the time it's available, it's the only one that's available. And then another vaccine comes along, let's say, uh, a couple of months later, and it's actually shown to be, let's say, twice as effective. It's a much better vaccine both in terms of its effectiveness and potentially also, let's say, it's safer on some sort of uh, characteristic, maybe um, just how sore your arm is or something minor like that, or maybe something more serious like some unexpected side effect that um, might have popped up with the first candidate but not in the second. That's going to be very interesting, having made that commitment and assuming that a subsequent better candidate is available, how do you unbundle the first arrangement and if you can procure supplies for a better alternative. It's going to be a very complicated situation because we all talk about if these vaccines work as if they're all going to work at a similarly high levels and with similar price and similar characteristics and all the rest of it. That's actually pretty unlikely. There's likely to be a lot of variation in the extent to which they will be effective and, and also the extent to which they're available. So not all of them have the same level of, if you like, simplicity with manufacturing um, cost of manufacturing will also be affected by that as well. So, yes, it's going to be a very interesting, you know, after the initial one or two that appear, what happens subsequently, what countries around the world are going to have to do about making perhaps second or third choices. I've got a curly one for you, Terry, off the back of that um, that, was pretty, that was pretty curly. That was pretty... That, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have some, some pretty... Um, I guess, curious listeners. And one of the questions that was put forward was a request from you to explain genetic drift as it might apply to COVID-19 and the concept of antigenic sin. Because as you said, we might have this rolling uh, rolling smorgasbord of vaccine options and then have to pivot between manufacturing A or B or C. But equally, right. the virus will evolve. And... and Yep, so your knowledgeable listeners are asking some pretty sophisticated questions there. So let's just deal with antigenic sin first and, and get it out of the way. Tell us what it is for everyone else <laughs> well, from this listener. Well, the idea of antigenic sin, which has come up through influenza vaccine, is that when you've been exposed at some point at a much younger age to a, a particular influenza virus, you've developed a, a response to that virus which goes away into immune memory means that later on in life when you're exposed to a virus which is similar to but not exactly the same, um, effectively your immune system um, thinks it's responded to the virus but it hasn't. It actually doesn't respond to the virus, a, a brand new virus. Its memory is contaminated by this previous exposure. So as far as coronavirus is concerned, we're not in the ballpark of thinking about that yet, although there are some interesting issues around um, uh, cross-protection because the coronaviruses or viruses like them that cause the common cold, adenoviruses more generally, uh, there may well be uh, issues of similarity, if you like, in earlier immune responses. Um, with This is relevant to some of the vaccines which have been produced, um, particularly the um, one of the Chinese vaccine candidates and also the Oxford vaccine, the adenovirus is a virus which has been modified for some of these new vaccines to allow them to um, be a carrier, if you like, for genetic code to induce antibodies against the coronavirus. So it's a different virus. But the human adenovirus, which infects human, causes usually a common cold type of syndrome. You can develop antibodies against it. If you're administered that virus as part of a construct developed, modified, um, for coronavirus, it's possible that the human antibody library that you have will actually destroy the vaccine virus because it thinks it's seeing a virus that's infecting it. The Oxford approach uh, were aware of this and they've chosen not a human adenovirus as their what's called vector, 
but a chimpanzee virus, so a non-human primate virus, which we know does not infect humans, and so for there should be no antibody to that particular chimpanzee vector um, with the AstraZeneca product. So that's that's one example of cross, if you like, um, cross reaction between different types of viruses. So to come back to your question, though, um, the uh, issue of mutation or genetic drift, which is different to uh, antigenic sin, although the antigenic sin idea does involve viruses which have moved away from their original form. So all, all cells are subject to mutation, including human cells, of course, but um, also in the world of microbes. So viruses uh, mutate, and the, the um, organisms generally have some level of self-protection against mutation or what's called an ability to repair mutated components of their genetic sequence with a gene or a set of genes which are called mismatch repair genes. So basically they go over, if you like, the sequence just checking for errors and find an error and can actually fix an error where a substitution for a particular um, uh, base or um, amino acid has occurred. The flu virus does not have this mismatch repair gene and as a result, flu mutates very, very frequently and often. And that's one of the reasons why flu has been so difficult to find a, a high quality vaccine to and having to have a different vaccine pretty much every year to allow for this genetic drift that's occurring. The coronavirus does have a mismatch repair gene and does is a much more stable virus than flu. But of course, as with all viruses, um, it will also mutate. And in fact, it has been mutating. So we already know since the appearance of this um, SARS-CoV-2, the, um, the COVID-19 coronavirus, um, mutations have occurred already in the last six months. And there is a national observatory, if you like, of that, uh, those mutations. So highly sophisticated um, viral genomics labs around the world are submitting their isolates um, where they've done the sequencing of the entire virus and they've been able to detect where mutations have occurred. Interestingly, in Australia at the moment, the Victorian outbreak is being driven by one particular mutation um, that looks like it's really um, quite stable. Sometimes with mutations, they also result in the virus not being what's called fit. In other words, the virus becomes more susceptible in, in the natural course of evolution of viruses, it basically dies out pretty quickly because it doesn't survive as well for other reasons. The mutation that's occurring now in the Victorian circulating virus looks like it's pretty stable. It's accounting for a very high proportion of, the, um, of all of the cases in Victoria um, that we've seen in this current lockdown period and just before. Um, and also, um, a very high proportion of all of those mutants around the world. So the same level of mutation hasn't been seen elsewhere in the world as it has been in Australia. What's the significance of this? What really matters if a mutation results in a vaccine which is directed against a particular virus, if the mutation, if you like, um, causes the target protein of the vaccine, so the antibody response that the vaccine induces in the, in the human cells, misses the target. In other words, it doesn't destroy the virus because it's aimed at the wrong target, the wrong protein or the wrong particular part of the protein for which the anti the, that vaccine had been designed to elicit an antibody response. So strictly speaking, um, it, it does. there is a worry. Even though it's a relatively stable virus, it can still mutate. It is mutating. It might be that the current vaccines will be quote, off target by the time they appear and if there's further mutation of the virus. So in the worst possible scenario, none of the vaccines might work because they've all been designed against a virus that was circulating out of Wuhan six months ago. And if the subsequent circulating viruses are very, very different from that, perhaps those vaccines won't be as effective or not effective in the worst outcome, not effective at all, um, or some increment of reduction of their effectiveness. So uh, that's why it's important. Um, it's one of the many um, little potholes in the road, as I've described them before, with all of these vaccine developments. You can't assume that the vaccine is going to be perfect and you can't assume it's going to be perfect for uh, you know, it behave as well as it might initially, subsequently, 
Although, again, it's not like the flu. There's no reason to believe this is highly likely to occur. Terry, you've anticipated my second last question, which was, what is the worst case scenario? To lift people's spirits just a little bit, I thought I'd ask you two things in closing up. One of them, what is the best case scenario? And then beyond that, what's your take-home message? What's the bottom line? What do you want people to go away with as they're tuning in at home, maybe in lockdown? <laughs> the best case scenario is still is the most likely to occur. And so I, I don't want to um, sound like a pessimist at all. I'm an optimist anyway. But frankly, having understood a little bit about, you know, some of what we've been talking about, the biology of the viruses and, and, and the, the twists and turns of developing an effective vaccine, um, all of the data which has appeared so far from the many human studies of the lead candidates and also the studies particularly in non-human primates in um, monkeys where those monkeys have been challenged with virus and where they've been vaccinated beforehand in several of the candidates, we know from them that the virus prevents severe illness, prevents death and even prevents uh, transmission of infection in one or two cases, which is the ideal and, and best case scenario. The virus protect, the vaccine protect, protects not just against disease, but also against transmission of infection, which is very important in developing herd immunity. Um, you don't want to have a, a virus that's still being transmitted around the community, even if a vaccine can prevent its uh, serious effects, because if it's being transmitted, you're still potentially going to infect vulnerable people. So you really want a vaccine that prevents against infection or transmission of virus as well as uh, against disease. The worst case scenario would be if you had one or more of the candidates that just didn't work at all, or worse still, that even if it did work, that it produced a set of side effects which were um, either serious or even if rare, sufficiently worrying that it undermines confidence in the whole use of vaccines, not just for COVID, but more generally. But the worst outcome would be a disaster with a vaccine that was not studied adequately, that was released prematurely, which produced a set of unexpected side effects, which results in complete public disenchantment in all vaccines, including the ones which we vaccinate our children with every day. Um, that would be a terrible disaster, which is why it's so important that there are no shortcuts in the accelerated programs that are happening at the moment. Um, that's why people have been so con concerned about the Russian uh, emergency use authorization. that really worrying that this might just be um, a step too far in terms of um, cutting corners. And for the sake of an extra two or three months of doing a phase three study and getting much better data on both safety and efficacy, that you run the risk of undermining an entire public health program. Professor Terry Nolan, you've got to be one of the most in-demand people on the face of the earth at the moment, at the height of the COVID-19 global pandemic. So I want to thank you for making time in what I imagine is a packed schedule for speaking us speaking to us today. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, May. It's been a, a, a real pleasure to chat with you and um, all the best. Stay safe, as we all say these days. Emerging from my interview with Professor Terry Nolan, I got the sense that one of the main challenges we face is having a conversation about vaccine research. For most of us, the immune system and how it works remains, well, hard to discuss. Without deep domain knowledge, vaccine development can seem like threading a needle from space. Our conversation left me with a bunch of questions. How do governments justify what gets invested in vaccines? Given the complexity of our health, how much should we be relying on them? Finally, how do vaccines relate to the overall functioning of our immune system as a whole? Let's hear from our next guest, Professor Mark Cohen. Mark is a medical doctor, university professor and wellness trailblazer. He's spent more than 30 years practising and researching holistic health. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers and many books and technical texts on wellness and natural medicine. He's the founder of the Extreme Wellness Institute and co-founder of the Bathe the World Foundation. I thought I'd start by asking you, could you tell us a bit about your journey to date? I had this really incredible career, 38 years at university, where I studied Western medicine. I did honours in physiology and psychology. I did a PhD in Chinese medicine, did another PhD in electrical and computer systems engineering. 
um, worked as a doctor for the last 30 years integra in integrative medicine, working at holistic health and integrative medicine, and um, became a professor and spent 16 years as a professor in the field of wellness. And that allowed me you know, to, to really explore and research um, a lot of ancient wisdom, you know, wisdom traditions, you know, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, herbal medicine, nutritional medicine, yoga, meditation. And I've published more than 100 uh, peer-reviewed papers on those topics, on you know, health resorts and you know, yoga and meditation, and herbal medicine, organic food. And um, I've worked a lot with the spa industry, which was, this is what I want. I want a world that the whole world is a health retreat. How do we create that? So I've spent 30 years as a doctor, half of that time as a professor, you know, growing that field, writing books and stories and a lot of textbooks. Um, and then the end of last year, end of 2018, I decided I'd retire from my university position, although I've still had six PhD students and I'd start working in the real world. But, you know, because I was anticipating this 2020 collapse, but I thought, okay, if I quit at the end of 2018, as a good Aussie guy, at the end of, you know, university, you take a gap year. So in 2019, I sort of took a gap year and took a holiday for a year and you know, ran some retreats and did some you know, um, groundwork. And now this year, 2020, I'm ready to work in the real world. So I feel like I've graduated and I'm just now starting my career after 38 years at university. And I've got all these products and services I'm about to launch. So I've just launched an online wellness academy um, with online courses and, and retreats and workshops. Um, I've got a water filter um, business that makes uh, beautiful water, which is filtered, structured, balanced, blessed, and free. We can talk about water for, forever if you want. Um, I'm making kombucha vinegars. I'm doing um, uh, children's books. I've got my next children's book, which is a creative creation story coming out. of My previous um, book was just read last week by the Duchess of York on gratitude, World Gratitude Day. It's, my book's all about gratitude. So the, you know, Fergie read my book on her YouTube channel. So I've got all, all these things happening now. It's a really exciting time. And in the midst of that, I've just created a, well, been part of this whirlwind of an online protestable in Melbourne, which is an online spirit-raising um, platform which we're now streaming dance music and uplifting music 24 hours, and we've got a whole lot of resources on the website um, around the COVID response. And I'm also coordinating COVID response with a whole lot of doctors right now. So I'm in this full whirlwind of activity, and um, it feels amazing, but it's, it's a really powerful time, and I'm really feeling that right now. I feel like you've conveniently segued us into my first question, which was really around how do you feel about the COVID response and the coverage in media? Um, Given your background, yeah. So, I mean, when this, when I first became aware of COVID, I thought, okay, it's a coronavirus, um, and I, I, I was about to launch um, a lot of my products, beautiful water and other things, at the hot springs down in the peninsula, and um, and you know, I was aware because I've I've got a PhD student now doing sauna research, and I've done quite a lot of sauna research. We've published systematic reviews, and I know about the use of hydrothermal therapies and heat, whether it's hot springs, hot bath, or a sauna to raise. Um, your body temperature to fight viral infections. So right at the start of the the, um, the pandemic, I was starting to write about that in social media. And I was really curious because I started getting banned, like censored. And the stuff I was and, and, and even getting trolled and people saying, how can any respectable doctor talk about heaters treating viruses? Yeah, tell us not... about that. Like what were you well, saying and what were they saying? Well, I, I was saying that you can out, outsource the energy for a fever to your environment. And to, when you do that, when you outsource that energy and you raise your body temperature, your immune system gets supercharged. And that's why you have a fever and, and during a fever. And that was all really well documented. And, and I've done the research, but people were saying against that. And actually the World Health Organization, actually even now on their website, they say you cannot raise your body temperature above 36.5 degrees, no matter how hot your bath or shower. And that's just blatantly false. But because that's on that WHO website, it means if you say anything against that, that Facebook or YouTube will censor you because it goes against their community guidelines because you're contradicting the, the World Health Organization. So that sort of got me a bit riled. So what I did, I spent like it was about six weeks full time writing a peer reviewed paper summarizing all the research that documents how heat can treat viral infections. And that's now a peer reviewed paper. It's, it's been published a couple of months ago. And that documents that not just humans, but you know, insects, reptiles, birds, mammals, fish, all raise their body temperature when they have a viral infection. Um, and, you know, mammals do it with fever and, and that requires your own metabolic energy, which makes you really tired. But you can do that through a hot bath or a sauna. So I've, I wrote about that, published that, and now I've published a position statement that um, basically says that, that 
bathing should be an essential service. That saunas and hot springs and, and um, gymnasiums and places that offer public bathing and also the beaches and rivers and, and lakes should become an essential service and not closed down during a pandemic. And that, that position statement's been translated into Russian and Chinese. It's gone to governments in the UK, America, Australia. But still, most of the public saunas in the world right now are closed. So um, in, in your assessment, because I want to loop back on your observation that the World Health mm-hmm. Organization is sort of contradicting the evidence you've put forward, mm-hmm. what's happening in your view to have WHO saying something which is directly opposed to your evidence? How have we come to this point? Well, I mean, I don't want to get down the conspiracy line, but, but okay. there is certainly <laughs> we can. I mean, we can go there, but there is there is certainly um, a, a concerted effort by mainstream media and government authorities to to suppress, actively suppress, and deny access to cheap, to safe, cheap, effective therapies. Got it. And whether that whether that's bathing, whether it's hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Um, whether it's you know, nutritional therapies, vitamin C, vitamin D, ivermectin, there's a whole range of really cheap, effective, safe, um, widely available therapies that are actually being suppressed. And by the WHO saying saying you cannot raise your body temperature, even though anyone with a thermometer in a bath can prove them wrong, um, by them saying that, and they actually say, you know, you might burn yourself, so don't try it. Um, they're actually... Um, disempowering people because once you, if you know that you can just have a hot bath, raise your body temperature, and there are some caveats around that. I mean, there's some s- simple common sense safety precautions when you're using heat. But if you can do that at home, it suddenly gives you power over your own physiology. You don't, have to be in, you don't have to be in fear. You can actually actively do something that helps you. And when you look at the, the evidence and, you know, turning up the heat on COVID-19, that's the article I've written. It's open access. You know, I had to pay for it to be published on an open access platform. Um, you know that documents all the, all, all the not just the historical and, and evolutionary evidence, but there's you know there's controlled clinical trials, there's epidemiological evidence, there's laboratory evidence, and it's evidence not just um, from a whole range of different study types, you know, systematic reviews, but there's also evidence on the cellular mechanisms, you know, the heat shock proteins and the, the immune enhancement and the cytokine changes and the, and the physiology that happens, but also the psychology, and. Um, one of the one of the research projects we did was a, a global sauna survey where we uh, surveyed people around the world who who use saunas and asked them what why do you do it and what do you do and what are the benefits and one of the the things that came across the board was they sleep better when you have a sauna or a hot bath and that was the same we did hot spring research and we interviewed you know four thousand people who go to hot springs and you know what happens when you go to hot spring you go home and you sleep better and what, one what, of the things what's the yeah. impact of say sleeping better. In addition to well, raising your body temperature. Well, I'm a big fan of permaculture and Bill Mollison used to say, well, he was the founder of permaculture, he said, when you get the basic things right, everything else can go right by itself. And the most basic, basic things in our life are water, so you know, having really good quality water and hydration, but also sleep. When, when you're well rested and well slept, no matter what other condition you've got, you're, you're better able to cope with it. So it builds your resilience. And right now there's there are so many factors out there and a lot of them have been um, manufactured and perpetrated through the media and through governments and through health agencies to disempower people and to make them scared and when you're when you're fearful you you don't think straight um, and it's really hard for you to know what the right thing to do is so I've also you know early on in the pandemic as well as writing about heat I've been um, producing content to um, give advice on how people can overcome fear and anxiety and boost their immune system. So, I ha- and and funnily enough, they've been coming out as poetry. So I've been I've been um, you know, teaching people how to overcome fear for the last few years, doing what I call extreme bathing, where people go from a sauna to an ice bath, or just or, you know going into an ice bath. And when you go into an ice bath, and I worked with Wim Hof, I gave lectures on the science behind the Wim Hof method for his Australian tour in two thousand eighteen, I think nineteen, eighteen. Um, but when you go into an ice bath, you actually reproduce the body chemistry and the breathing pattern of trauma and anxiety. You start to hyperventilate naturally, you know, when you go into cold water. So, there, but there are some things you can do, some biohacks you can do that actually activate your parasympathetic nervous system, your rest and digest mode. I call them the ten hacks to relax, and that's just a simple poem. It's been made into a song now and a, and a little animated video. But it's just you know, touch all your fingers, wiggle your toes, soften your stomach. 
breathe through your nose. Sigh, smile, swallow, sing, flutter your eyelids and focus within. So those, those 10 activities are all things you do when you're safe in your cave, when you're in rest and digest mode. So if you're scared, anxious, upset or in pain, you can do those things and calm your body down and then work out the best thing to do. So, Mark, I ha- I'm curious to know when you look out over the blogosphere, the social media sphere, the media sphere, what's your compare and contrast with what is happening? And, I mean, I'm, I'm going to invite you to make comment on the focus on vaccines in particular and the masks, um, social distancing. How do you, as a medical professional who, I guess, isn't encumbered by whatever vested interest, how do you understand that or how would you explain that to someone who said, Mark, I want the truth. Like, what is going on here? So, so there are, I mean, there are multiple agendas going here right, right yep. now. And, and I actually take a really big picture agenda, which I haven't heard many other people talk about, and it's an evolutionary perspective. And that is we're, we're actually at the end of a phase that's actually been, it's lasted, it's gone through four and a half billion years of evolution and was first the, the evolution of life, which went through um, invertebrate life, which went from gels to cells to organelles, then sexual cells and shells. That was invertebrate life. And then vertebrate life, which went from scales to skin to feathers to fur to fashion. That's human life. And then human evolution, which went from, you know, spoken word to writing to printing to then networking or then broadcasting and then networking. So we're at the end of that phase of networking. We now have a global human community and we're about to hit a um, an evolutionary milestone in that we're, we're going to form a, a global evolutionary consciousness, a global consciousness. When you think about, say, this novel coronavirus, which for, for the punter on the street, it's someone ate bats and then it jumped over to humans or whatever occurred in the mm-hmm. first instance, what's the mental model you use to kind of contextualise, say, coronavirus and the unfolding biome? So, so that, that biome, which is the primordial soup, is still within our cells and the virome that's part of that, the DNA particle, you know, the DNA you, and RNA. You've got to, you got to explain what a virome is. The, well, the virome is just the whole collection of um, genetic information that, um, like, literally trillions and trillions of viruses that make up our body and make up our environment. So we, we're not, we, we've studied the microbiome, which is the, the bacterial um, components of our bodies, and, and there's at least as many bacteria in our bodies as human cells, and the genetic information from bacteria is far beyond the genetic, genetic information from our human cells. But now what we're realising is that the bacteria are actually in turn controlled by viruses. And, I mean, every, every second bacteria in the world dies every two days because of bacteriophages, which are these viruses that kill bacteria. And that's an evolution, it's an ecosystem. The, the viruses and the bacteria keep each other in control and they've evolved with us. And that's happened for literally for billions of years. So we had the, you know, the first that primordial soup, that, which was still inside our cells, and those first basic bacteria um, became engulfed by cells and they became the mitochondria and the chloroplasts that, that do photosynthesis and, and do our respiration. And then you had the simple pro- prokaryotic bacteria being engulfed, you know, by eukaryotic bacteria, by eukaryotic cells, that's the complex cells, they, they became part of multicellular organisms and those multicellular organisms eventually got covered by shells and, and shelled life, you know, arthropods, insects, crustaceans, they're still the biggest form of life on earth, the biomass of life. But then shelled life can't get that complex. So with the evolution of life, you, you went through fish, which is scales, and then to the, to the land, which was skin with reptiles, um, feathers took birds to the air, Fur took mammals everywhere to the land and the sea and the air. And then humans, we have fashion. We can make Gore-Tex jackets and aeroplanes and, you know, cars that we can go anywhere on Earth. And that's, that's that evolution. But each layer contains the previous layers. So still within us are all the viruses, are all the prokaryotic bacteria um, and all our eukaryotic cells are all existing at the same time. And you think about a virus not as a living thing. Viruses are not alive. They're just packets of information. They literally come in an envelope. So you think about them as a message or as a, as a um, yeah, a, a piece of information and that can be shared between um, organisms and you can, and there's a lot of um, really good but quite suppressed research that says, you know, you can't transmit, uh, you can transmit a virus but you can't transmit sickness. 
the virus is just like a message that says, hey, this is what's going on. And then you either, you either get the message, say, oh, you've got the message, I'm okay. Or you get the message and you say, oh, my God, something's going on, and you start to panic and then you, you create other panic messages. Okay, I'm going to so, ask you a provocative yeah. question right here. Sure. You can transmit the virus, but you can't transmit sickness. Yeah. So everyone that's sort of been taken out by coronavirus, is it fair to say they were sick already? Well, I think everyone's saying that. Not, you know, 96% of people who... Um, died from coronavirus, had at least two and a half other co- serious comorbidities. And they're also denied, you know, these safe, cheap, effective treatments. So if, if you know, if you have those comorbidities, you know, if you're overweight, if you're, if you've got, you know, COPD and other, um, you know, diabetes and other um, significant problems, yeah, you're going to be more susceptible. So when you get the message that, hey, something's going on in, in, the, in the environment, you better prepare yourself, you're not prepared. And then if you're denied, um, these other safe, effective treatments, which can just be as simple as heating up your body and activating your immune system or getting zinc into your cells with um, hydroxychloroquine or, or even nutrition. I mean, berries and, and seeds will do a very similar job. Um, so the, the hot topic right now is vaccines. Our mm-hmm. governments uh, and our public decision makers have hung these out as being the great promise um, and billions of dollars are being allocated towards researching and finding the right one. Is that a wasted investment? Is that a bad investment? I think vaccines are absolutely brilliant if you want to make lots and lots of money and you want to control people. I think vaccines are brilliant for that. In terms of um, creating health, vaccines are absolutely hopeless. In fact, there's no evidence, that any, any evidence anywhere that says vaccinated people are healthier than unvaccinated people. And just so um, that we can get, I, I really want to kind of nail this point. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that all vaccines, including the childhood immunisation schedule, mm-hmm. there's no evidence that they make for healthier children? That, that's correct. There's never been a study to show that unvaccinated people are less healthy or that vaccinated people are healthier than unvaccinated people. That study has not been done. So there's also, yeah. just there's to, also no placebo controlled trials of vaccines, um, which, you know, they haven't been done either. So the much-circulated trope, anti-vaxxer, which is, you know, unfortunately passed around by lots of people, including the medical and healthcare profession, what's that really about? Well, this is like a technocracy agenda. You know, there are technocrats who who have, I mean, they have a eugenics agenda, but they, they think technology will save everybody. And they can save everybody through technology, and we've got these amazing technologies. With you know, and now, and and you know, the vaccines they're purport, you know uh, proposing now aren't normal vaccines. These are um, genetic modification technologies that also can be um, that can actually interact with other technologies such as um, electromagnetic fields and and information transfer. So you've got this whole ecosystem of control and um, and governance that's done through technology. So they can control everybody through algorithms, really. Um, so that, 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 that is, um, an, I think, quite a scary agenda. And when you, when you start to talk about, let's, let's give essentially untested vaccines. I mean, this you know, warp speed um, development of vaccines without proper safety testing. We don't know in 10 years, are they going to cause infertility? Are they, I mean, you th- look at other you know, public health disasters. There's a great book called um, Lace Lessons from Early Warnings. And that's when we knew about, you know, um, thalidomide or diethyl steel bistral or, you know, acid rain or asbestos uh, or tobacco even. You know, they, they were known to be dangerous decades before we paid attention. And pretty much all the companies that are developing vaccines are convicted felons. Like they all have serious convictions for felony. Why would we trust them with our health? It's a fair point. My question to you is what would it take for you to trust a vaccine? Um, I'd love to see a placebo-controlled um, study that, that shows that, one, that the vaccine uh, prevents the disease that it's purported to prevent, so not just raising antibodies because that's, that's not actually showing anything clinically. Really, and really important that, point there. Please, mm-hmm. Can you just unpack that? Sure. I mean, well, they use you know, making antibodies as... The, okay, this vaccine's effective because you make antibodies, but there are, there, there are you know, three major lines of our immune defence and only one of them involves antibodies. So the, the first line of our defence is our skin and mucous membranes. And with respiratory viruses, I mean, respiratory virus can't get through your skin. It has to go into your mucous membranes, um, which is essentially your, your sinuses and nasal cavity. Um, now, that doesn't 
that's not affected by vaccines. Um, so, you know, and, but you can actually enhance that first line of defence by having a humid environment, by, by raising your body temperature, by um, making sure you've got warm, you know, humid air so you're not drying out your nose, by having adequate vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, etc. That's That's the first line of defence. Your second line of defence is your innate immune system, which also involves IgA, um, which lines your... Um, mucous membranes, but but also your macrophages and killer T cells that that again they're not primed, they're not um, it's not related to antibodies. And what there's a lot of research now showing that if if you had a cold last year, you, everyone's been exposed to coronaviruses all the time. That you actually have T cell immunity, your innate immunity already knows how to handle coronaviruses. So most people are not susceptible to the current coronavirus. And then you have the um, acquired immunity, which is making antibodies. And, you know, that's only one line of that defence. Um, but you have, as I say, you have T-cell immunity, you have all these other innate defences that can be enhanced. Um, so, you know, to only go into the last line of defence and try and prop that up with a vaccine, and then even if the vaccine does make antibodies, that's not necessarily showing that you're going to prevent the disease it's causing. There's... Um, uh, um, antigenic priming, where a vaccine can actually make you more susceptible to the condition that you're trying to vaccinate against. And also, it can actually make you transmit that disease that you're trying to vaccinate against when you've had the vaccine. Um, so that's you know, so there are really serious issues. And, and a lot of people have, you know, documented that. I think, um, you know, Del Big Tree on the high wire and I Can Decide and Robert um, F. Kennedy has done a lot of great work and legal work, um, you know, um, challenging the... Uh, the, the makeup of the studies that are actually looking at vaccinations, but also um, just the way vaccines are compensated. Because if you're if you're vaccinated and damaged, uh, you have no recourse to say, okay, I, I need compensation. That's all covered. And you know, in America, they've paid out four billion dollars. What, what do you mean damaged? If you have an adverse vaccine reaction, um, you cannot sue the manufacturer. What what you need to do is then apply to the government, and the government may or may not give you compensation. In America, they have a scheme which has paid out more than $4 billion um, for vaccine compensation, but that's a government scheme. So if you're, if you're damaged by a vaccine, you have to sue the government. So you're up against the public, you know, directed public pros prosecutions in the US to say, to prove your case. And, and people have done that and they've paid out over $4 billion. But um, yeah, this is, this is, there's no incentive for vaccine companies to make healthy vaccines when um, they have no uh, accountability for the damage that they're caused. I'm going to ask you a question about I guess, let's say our medical colleagues, you've obviously researched this topic. Many doctors toe and continue to toe the line on vaccines and don't necessarily share your view. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? Why have we come to this point? Well, this is not just my view. This is, I'm just reporting. And, and I'm not a you know, vaccine campaigner, as I said at the start. I'm, I'm not really I campaigning against the things I don't want. I campaign for the things I do want. So I want, you know, wellness practices and these simple practical solutions that everyone can use. But I think the, um, and if you look into the history of medicine, I mean, I've been championing integrative medicine and natural medicine my whole career, you know, over 30 years. And if you look at the, um, the railroading of natural medicine um, with the Flexner Report, which is a Rockefeller-funded report in the, you know, the early 1920s, 1930s, which really shut down a lot of the natural um, medicine fraternity and made you know, Rockefeller medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, the mainstream. And, and they pretty much took over the universities. They took over the scientific publishing establishments. Um, for 20 years or more, um, you know, uh, Martha Angel and, and you know, the heads of, you know, the, the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine and of The Lancet have both come out and said that um, peer-reviewed science has been bought out by pharmaceutical interests. So, I mean, we all went through the same intellectual sausage factory, arguably. We all went to medical school. Yet yep. so many of your peers, I guess, are not necessarily as passionate as you are. Like, are you, well, I th have I think they I've sold been really out? Fortunate. I think I've been really fortunate because I've been on the edge of the system, even though I'm, you know, a registered doctor and I've, I've been a professor. I've had a lot of intellectual freedom to explore the ideas and I haven't had to rely on, you know, patients for my paycheck and, and or be an employed system. So I've, I've had a lot of ability to... Um, consider and, and think about what's going on. But it's also, um, I think, you know, as, as a doctor, uh, there's so much good you can do in medicine. We, and we're not taught, in medical school, we're not taught a lot about vaccines. We're not taught about the, um, 
you know, the immunology and the, and, and the politics of vaccines even. So, and when you look at the vaccine, you know, the safety sheets you get as a doctor, if you actually read what's in there, it's sort of horrifying. But most, most doctors, I think, just want to, okay, you know, they, we trust the NHNMRC. Mm. These are the guidelines. These are the clinical guidelines. We follow them. That's good medicine. So I think there's a lot of trust and, and without questioning. Is there a and betrayal of trust at play here? I, I think there's been a massive betrayal of trust um, and I think people are just waking up to that. And the extent of it, I think, goes much deeper than people realise. Um, yeah, and, and, and ultimately the betrayal of trust is our own fault because we've lost trust in ourselves. So we've given over trust in our own bodies and our own health to the medical establishment, to the government, to the, to the industries that give us the next shiny object that, you know, that we can work and you know, monitor things with. So I think you know, we've lost trust in ourselves and the people we've given that trust to have taken it and used it to gain power over us. And now you know, we're totally governed by those, those structures. Mark, these are somewhat unsettling and I guess very important points you've made. I thought I'd, in, in bringing us to a wrap-up, which we regrettably have to do, I wanted to ask you what you think the best-case scenario is as you see it, as we kind of move into the next phase of the pandemic with governments, you know, pushing for vaccines and all of these social restrictions globally. Mm-hmm. If you could wave a wand, if you could cast your philosophy over the planet, what would you not see and what would you want to see? Well, I, I really believe we're on the brink of paradise. I, I really believe we are on the brink of worldwide wellness. No, I don't think we're on the brink of, you know, collapse. So I'm super optimistic. And what I want to see is for people to gain the sovereignty over themselves, for people to overcome fear. We have the, the, the technology now for distributed peer-to-peer networks. We have you know, digital currencies. We have uh, and distributed decentralised you know, distri- c- currencies. We have technologies for you know, um, um, self-organisation and for local economies and then for them to, to work in with other economies that are, are peer-to-peer and collaborative economies. So I, I would like to see a, a dissolution of all government and because um, governments really don't serve the people, they serve each other and, they, and the people who are pulling the strings behind the government, you know, they pitch one against the other, but we're, you know, we're beyond governments and nations and, and lines in the sand. We're a global humanity now. So we need to come together as one global humanity and say, this is the earth we have. This is, you know, we can um, create heaven on earth. And I think that the, my really um, my hobby horse right now is you know we're not going to have global health until everyone has access to clean water. I mean that's just obvious. And r- currently, right now, under the current current governance structures, one in three people on Earth don't have access to clean water, and that's a travesty. I mean, you were talking about vaccinating the world. How about just giving the world clean water so they can wash? And you know, clean water is the cheapest, the simplest, and the most effective health intervention on Earth, bar none. So, you know, I would see, I'd wave a wand and I would um, create all, I'd, you know, all the money that's been spent on vaccines and, and pharmaceutical agendas, I would transfer on water infrastructure and giving everyone the ability to have clean water that can either be ice or steam. Because if you have the ability to have hot water you know, and cold water, you can cook your food, you can refrigerate your food, you can have you know, a hot bath, you can have an ice bath, you can have a sauna, um, and you literally can have paradise. It's, you, know, you can have luxury on earth. So that would be you know, an agenda around you know, clean food, you know, clean water, clean air. Um, you know, I have a recipe for wellness, so you know, I would want to follow that, which is bathe in beautiful water, prepare delicious food, make the most of every breath, Dance through every mood. Tend the soil beneath your feet. Embrace sunshine from above. Share your gifts with all the world. Fill your life with love. So I would, I would, I would mandate that. How do you put that into law? Well, we can only, we can only start now, is, is all I'll say. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Mark Cohen. For anyone who'd like to hunt Mark out, you'll find him at www.drmark.co or at extremewellness.co. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, mate. Having the opportunity to host a conversation with both Professors Terry Nolan and Professor Mark Cohen, one thing was clear. We all want the same thing. We want as many people as possible to thrive in the face of environmental challenge. 
Reflecting on this, I wanted to offer a mental model, borrowed, from health thought leader Dr Peter Atiyah, MD. In thinking about the role of vaccines for COVID-19, there are really two key questions. One, once infected, how long does immunity last upon recovery? In other words, what's the risk of reinfection and infecting other people? And two, assuming safety, which isn't guaranteed, how efficacious will vaccines be against COVID-19? Question one examines how much herd immunity occurs naturally by people who were at one point infected by the virus. Question two asks how effectively a vaccine can trick the immune system to prevent serious infection on first contact. These are the essential things to ask in understanding how either to get herd immunity or have enough of the population immune to impair spread. What we're dealing with here is a complicated series of trades. We are balancing a dynamic system of individual freedoms and choices with the speed at which good science can be done and a vaccine produced at an industrial scale. In principle, herd immunity can be achieved through natural immunity, as Professor Mark Cohen says, where it requires effective vaccination, as Terry and his team are trying to make available. If we were to value and optimise for natural immunity, or in Mark's words, the basics, should more public health efforts focus on understanding what it takes to achieve immune fitness, or should we also be acknowledging and growing the scientific rigour around the ancient wisdom medical doctors like Mark talk about. More to the point, if we do so, what other systematic and holistic benefits will spread out across all of society? If we want to bank on the power of vaccines to combat this novel coronavirus, how much more are we going to need to invest? And at what expense? What's it going to take to safely and effectively create one that offers robust immunity? Awkward question from me. How many people are actually going to have an opportunity for all of the above to even be a choice? Our worst-case scenario is one in which no long-standing immunity develops and an effective vaccine can't be found. In this case, you're going to want to have your basic health in order. Our best-case scenario involves long-standing immunity and effective vaccines. For those of you who are interested, I'm going to post more about this online at our Instagram page at Alternative Truth Podcast. In the meantime... Thanks for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. 